Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Well Then. This episode is unique because it was actually recorded last year when I originally intended to launch season three as usual. And then as many of you know, I began to struggle with chronic illness and my year took a very different turn. And over the course of that time, the podcast has taken a different turn as well. And I'm so excited about all the things that I'm getting to share with you guys now. But this episode was also really important to me in that it was kind of at the beginning stages of me just discovering what was going on in my body. So before I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease and all the co-infections and mold toxicity and all that wild stuff, um, I first found out that I had an MTHFR uh, genetic mutation or gene variation that makes it hard for my body to um, methylate or basically to detox properly, which you'll learn a lot more about in this episode because we have the amazing Dr. Amy Newsel on who is an incredible doctor who runs an integrated wellness center and specializes in this MTHFR uh, gene variation because she has um, the issue herself and she just has so much great education to share on this topic, which I think something like more than 40% of people in North America have. So it's it's very common and um, she shares a lot of useful information to get started on exploring this issue if it's something you suspect you might have or if you've already been diagnosed with it. And there's just a lot of good stuff here. So I'm excited um, for you to hear more about what she has to share. And um, we'll let her do the talking because she can share much more eloquently about it than I can. All right. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you on here to not only educate all of my listeners on MTHFR and what it is and and how it can impact you, but also so that I can continue learning as well, because as you know, we've mentioned, I am I've newly discovered (laughs) that I'm an MTHFR mutant. So definitely on the path to, to lots of learning myself. So thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, I'm so thrilled, Megan, and welcome to the Mutant Club. I promise we're a nice group of folks. You know, I always said being normal is overrated anyways, so I think this is a cool club to belong to. (laughs) Completely agree. Um, Awesome. So before we kind of dive in, and and I would love for you to share more about your story and your journey, but before we even do that, I would love to just start out by having you kind of define and share what MTHFR is so people have some context going into it and and, and know what this um, weird sounding abbreviation that we're saying is. Right, right. Because by itself, it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> so <laughs> MTHFR is actually a genetic, um, they call it a variant. It's not a mutation, so to, so to speak. And if you could see me, you'd see the bunny ears happening here. Um, mutation is sort of reserved for things that are catastrophic and, and big in scope. This has a lot of impacts, but it's by no means catastrophic. It just changes the way that we are able to process folate. So MTHFR stands for, hold on, <laughs> it's a mouthful, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Yeah, that definitely a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, oh no, I know. <laughs> yeah. There's no reason to say that. That's why we yep. shorten it to MTHFR, which still feels long. <laughs> um, but it's much better for sure. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So this is a gene, this methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene codes for an enzyme 
And an enzyme is basically like a magic chair, right? That something sits in to get changed into something better. Um, and so in this case, the thing that sits in the chair is folate, right? So dietary sources of folate sit in the chair and get activated into 5-L-methyltetrahydrofolate, blah, 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 uh, which is the active form that our body can actually use for processes. And so when you have a variant in this MTHFR gene, the chair is shaped a little funny uh, and folate has a harder time sitting there and it takes longer maybe to activate. And so, you know, at the end of the day, this is really just a folate problem. <laughs> it's a problem getting active folate to be where it needs to be and in the quantities that it needs to be. That is such a great way of breaking down what can be a really confusing and complex issue in a way that hopefully everybody listening listening can understand a little bit better. And fingers crossed, it was a decent mental picture because it's, you know, <laughs> otherwise it gets really complicated. Yeah, it's not an easy one to grasp. And so for people listening who are like, wait a minute, what is folate even? And why is that important? Let's, can we, can we define uh, the importance of folate in the body and, and why it's important that our bodies can uh, handle it and process it well? Absolutely. And that's a great question. So folate is a vitamin, right? And vitamins are crucial and they're important because they're things that we can't manufacture ourselves. We have to actually get them from our diet, right? And so there's these essential nutrients that we need to take from the environment to do different body processes. And folate is one of the, I mean, arguably most important, they're all important, but but folate is really kind of at the crux of a lot of problem of, of a lot of um, processes and problems because it's used for um, a lot of genetic regulation and gene methylation, but also in um, spinal cord development in, I mean, cellular energy, <clears throat> excuse me, cellular energy production. So there's all these processes that are really, really tied into folate that just can't happen without it. Um, and I think the biggest things that people notice when they have folate issues is certainly problems with pregnancies. So pregnancy losses, but also, um, you know, spinal tube defects in babies. So things like cleft lip, cleft palate, spina bifida, um, that sort of thing. And then also energy level issues, right? They just don't, they don't have the, the energy, the resources that they need to actually make their body function on a day-to-day -day basis. Right, absolutely. And so we see a lot of people with MTHFR um, variants that, that struggle with like chronic fatigue or just kind of that low, low level energy in general. Absolutely, yeah. Chronic fatigue is a big problem in the community and, um, and also, you know, ties, it ties in with other energy centers. So, you know, because this is taxed, because this system is taxed, it can also drag on the thyroid, which is like an energy producing gland, drag on the adrenals, which are another energy producing gland. Um, and so we see it kind of spread its fingers out into everything. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll get deeper into kind of some of the symptoms people might be experiencing with different, um, 
depending on like where they land and on the scale of MTHFR. But before we do dive into that, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your background and your journey and how you discovered this, because I know you share that you you kind of happened upon it accidentally. And I think that that's um, can be the case for a lot of other people. So um, I would love you to share a little bit more about what that journey has looked like for you. For sure. Yeah, I completely came in the back door, which is hilarious because, you know, in in training, I'm a naturopathic doctor and went through med school and blah, 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 you know, all of that. And we learned a lot about epigenetics, which is the study of how your environment and your lifestyle influences your genetic expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, honestly, I don't recall if MTHFR was mentioned or if it was kind of passed over, but that was that was also quite a while ago. <laughs> and so it was a very new issue and there weren't a lot of people talking about it at that time. Anyway, when I went into practice, wasn't on my radar. One of my clients showed up in my office and said, look, okay, she's, she'd been having trouble with fertility. She'd had repeat miscarriages. And finally she went to a great, great specialist who tested her for MTHFR and they found out she had a variant. And so she came to my office and said, look, I don't understand this. I have no idea what's going on, but apparently I have this thing. Can you see if you can figure it out? And I was like, well, yeah, okay. I've never heard of it, but let's do it. right?" (laughs) And so I went home and started doing some research and it was literally one of those moments of like, Oh, Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally me, you know, and what I was reading about were, you know, things like facial asymmetries. So you can't see me, but I do have a reasonably strong facial asymmetry. Um, Things like inexplicable pain syndromes, which, you know, I had had what I thought was juvenile arthritis, but was never diagnosed. And I had all of this inflammation and random stuff and, you know, hormone imbalances because MTHFR is tied in with estrogen. And then, of course, repeat miscarriages, which in my family history, it's covered in that sort of thing. Um, And there's all sorts of other things that, you know, I picked out of my family history as well, right? Anxiety disorders, um, a variety of mental health issues, things like um, alcoholism or addictions, you know, it's all over, right? And so I started to say, well, hmm, (laughs) this is hitting a little too close to home. And uh, so sure enough, I sent off my 23andMe genetic kit, which is not meant to be medical testing at all, but they give you this wealth of information that you can then mine for medical information. Mm -hmm. And I ran it through a processor, a secondary processor called Genetic Genie that does something that they call a methylation panel. And so you take the raw data from 23andMe and run it through Genetic Genie. And sure enough, my methylation panel came back looking like stoplights, right? Like it was all (laughs) red, two variants, yellow, one variant, red, two variants. Oh, so I started the long and and, uh, slow process of kind of doing the research. And since then, it's really MTHFR research itself has blossomed because we're finding out that it is connected to so very many things. And so, you know, obviously I went back to that client. We had a little laugh about it. I was like, well, (laughs) you taught me something. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, but, uh, But after that, I started seeing more and more people showing up to my office who I was like, you know what? I kind of suspect this is going on for you. And 
as that was happening, I was kind of developing smarter and smarter strategies in terms of dealing with it. And it's just a work in progress, right? It keeps evolving in terms of how to actually deal with this thing because understanding the research is one thing, but understanding how people do clinically with you know different supplements or different nutrients is a very different thing. And often the twain don't meet, right? <laughs> like those two things don't always see eye to eye. So, so it's yeah. been a really interesting journey for me. And personally, it's been astounding in terms of how much my health has actually changed since starting on this path. Um, you know, and part of it was eliminating food sensitivities and food sources of folate, which ironically is really bad for MTHFR folks. And then part of it was adding in folate rich foods. And then a lot of it has been also supplementing to make up the deficiencies around that enzyme. Yeah. And that seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to be like the more complicated part. Like once you, once you get the the answer or the diagnosis and you, you have this information, then it's not like there's just a one size fits all um, kind of supplement routine and, and set of practices that work for everybody. It's almost like you have to play detective a little bit to find out what works best for you. That's exactly right. You know, and ironically, we know what we all need, right? Like we all need this active form of folate, Mm -hmm. but some people in the MTHFR groups are completely intolerant to that form of folate. It makes them feel crazy. (laughs) That's not fun. So, you know, then what do you do, right? Then you have to find all these workarounds. And there are, there are some steps that are common. So taking foods and supplements that are fortified with folic acid, which is a synthetic form of folate, out of your diet is absolutely common. That should be done by every, every, every person with the MTHFR gene mutation. The problem I, is it's, it's not actually that easy, right? Like, because it's in everything. And I think that a lot of people are under the impression that it's really good for you. Like if a food is fortified with folic acid, then they're like, great, there's more vitamins and nutrients in this. Like it's something I should be eating. Well, exactly. Including most people's doctors, right? Their primary care physicians, their family physicians. So the people that are advising people in terms of nutritional input and their health are recommending folic acid for everybody, which If it's a choice between zero folate and folic acid, it makes sense to get some folic acid. But in the Western world, in developed countries, we're actually overloaded with folic acid, at which point it becomes all sorts of toxic, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of research that links folic acid in too high a dose to um, a number of different cancers, to uh, inflammatory processes to cardiac disease, like there's all of these consequences. And those consequences are far worse for people with MTHFR mutations. So it's really, it's imperative that people with MTHFR are staying away from folic acid. But unfortunately, it's the medical community's go-to solution. <laughs> so right. that's a little bit complicated. Yeah. And we can get more into like, you know, what, what, what it's actually in, how to stay away from it and what foods to bring in more of and replace it with. But, um, I, I love that in speaking to your journey, you really talked about like all of these, a lot of things started to make sense for you. Like you started looking at your family history and you're like, wait a minute, this is all (laughs) feeling very familiar because I had a similar process where when I started to read through the list of you know, potential symptoms or effects of, of having this variant, it was like, 
whoa, you mean all of these seemingly random and disconnected (laughs) symptoms and things that I've kind of just like managed a little bit throughout my life. And I'm like, you know, I've just learned to live with it. You mean they're all probably connected and I can actually do something about it? Like that's wild. I know it really is a weird feeling because I had just considered that I had a very strange family history and a weird spectrum of symptoms. You know what I mean? Like none of it went together in any cohesive sense. And so, you know, I'd work a little bit on hormones over here and work a little bit on, you know, detox and liver processing over here, but there wasn't any cohesive base to all of this weirdness. Right. And now suddenly there is. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I started seeing that too, I I would look to like a lot of my family members who are still around and have been like trying to get them to go down this path too. Cause I'm like the things that you're feeling, you don't have to be feeling that way. Like the health issues you have might actually be fixable. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned the hard way that family members are like an exercise in futility. Yep. Yep. 100%. Um, But so I think one thing that's also important to call out at this point is, is how common this actually is, because I was pretty shocked when I found out how many people, at least, you know, in, in the U S based on the statistics I read, um, likely have some form of this variation. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit more? It is pretty remarkable. Yeah. In the U S especially they're saying up to 40% of the population, which is huge, right? This is not like a random outlier variant that like, you know, 1% of people have, this is like, yeah, half of the population. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And some of those, you know, they might have one, one bad copy out of four that we really follow or whatever, but people have significant symptoms, even with with what seems like it should be a minor variant, right? A minor mutation. So, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, it doesn't matter fully, I'm fine. But it's also incredibly, incredibly helpful to so many people to actually start looking at this and paying attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess I am one of those. I just have the one variant that I'm heterozygous mm-hmm. <laughs> for mm-hmm. one of the genes, the one that starts with a C, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which that probably doesn't mean anything to anybody listening, but obviously to you, <laughs> it does. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I still notice like some serious symptoms. And so I'm really excited still kind of being at the beginning of my journey to see where this all goes as I find the right kind of supplements and diet and all of that for me. So for you, I know you said that your journey was pretty remarkable. What were some of the shifts in symptoms that you experienced in your health when you started going down the path of, of healing? Yeah. You know, it's, it's been a huge, huge, um, a huge shift overall. So when I first started, I was still having a significant amount of joint pain. Like I would say a five to six out of 10 level pain daily, right? I would wake up and just, that was how I felt. Uh, and that was normal. And that had been my normal. Um, and, and that was even maybe a little bit better than it had been in my childhood, you know, because I'd been doing so much work on my health otherwise. And so um, it, the first thing that I really noticed, so the first part of my journey was actually taking wheat out of my diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big deal because wheat happens to be fortified, but I also have a sensitivity to wheat. (laughs) So there were two problems there. 
Um, so wheat is fortified with folic acid, which, you know, is good to eliminate. But then I also have this wheat and gluten sensitivity that, that is a really massive chunk of inflammation for me. Um, and when I took it out, I didn't really notice a change in symptoms right away. And so I thought it was maybe not that important. And I added it back in and I thought I got the flu. Like I just, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that adding in something that I'd eaten my whole life after two weeks of being off of it, this wasn't a huge time, right? Like right. <laughs> this was two weeks away from wheat. Uh, and I added it back in and I really thought I got the flu, right? I, I thought I thought I got the flu and I staggered into my office one morning to do some paperwork. I'd canceled my patients for the day and my office manager, who was this amazing, astute, just hilarious woman, she, uh, she looked at me and she was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're the doctor. Do I need to tell you that that's because of the wheat? <laughs> because she had this conversation with so many of my patients who were like, I think I've got the flu. No, no, you just did your food challenge, right? <laughs> like, right. This is a food sensitivity. And uh, so, you know, she, she gave me a good dressing down, which was much needed. And I still didn't believe it. So I went home and grumbled a lot. Yeah, because you don't want and, it to be true. <laughs> no, of course not. God, who wants to live without croissants? Right, <laughs> like, exactly. This is, this is not acceptable, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, I went home and grumbled a lot and grudgingly took wheat back out of my diet for a few days. And then I was like, no, you know what? It couldn't have been. Like, nobody feels that bad for me, <laughs> right? And so I added it back in and I swear it felt like I'd been hit by a truck. Like, I just, it was it was an insane amount of symptoms for just wheat. Right? And so like body aches and I was having chills and I had night sweats and this whole like grumpy, whatever shebang. Wow. And, and so, yeah, when I, when I went back to the office, I was like, okay, Denise, you were completely right. It was the wheat. Um, and I took it back out of my diet and I wasn't noticing a lot of symptom resolution from taking it out at this point. I was just noticing symptoms from putting it back in. <laughs> but over the next, say, three to four months, as the inflammation level slowly came down because the wheat was no longer in my system, it was like night and day, right? Like my pain went from a five to six to maybe a two out of 10 on a daily basis. Wow. And that's huge, that's right? Massive, like if you've been yeah. living with pain for years, going to making that drastic a drop is remarkable, right? And it became so obvious that, that something was happening there. Something was, was right. Yeah. Um, and coincidentally, at the same time, I found these multivitamins that it was like all of a sudden I could tell I was taking a multivitamin um, and I'd never had that feeling before. And yeah. the difference was that it had the, the active form of folate in it, the 5-L-methyltetrahydrofolate. Um, because normally, you know, like I'd take a multivitamin and go about my day and nothing would change, right? But with right. this one, I was like, whoa, okay, I feel good. Like I've got, <laughs> I've got energy. I feel well. <laughs> I want to take that thing again. And so... You know, I just, I really started paying attention to it. And it's, I had a lot of setbacks along the journey as well. Um, you know, I started to get really excited about this whole methylation thing. And there's, there's other things for MTHFR called methyl donors, where you can take something that 
gives your body a methyl group with which to methylate other things. Yay. Okay. And so um, it turns out I don't react to those well at all. That was, that was a picture of Amy trying to, you know, paint the ceiling and wallpaper the walls at the same time. <laughs> Way <laughs> too much energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't work out. Um, but it was definitely, you know, I really, it, I really started to understand how pivotal a problem this is when I could see the, the huge, huge leaps forward that I was making with just simple changes, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and of course, you know, my my clients came along with me. <laughs> this was this was kind of a journey we were all starting together, and so it was sort of group guinea pig process where we were trying different things and. And it was a little bit mystifying at first because the things that were working for me weren't necessarily working for other people. And we kind of had to figure out why. Yeah. And I think that for anybody listening who maybe is at the beginning stages of that, that's so important to hear because I'm still kind of in that myself where I thought when I found this out that like just starting to take the L uh, mm -hmm. MTH wait, sorry, what is it? Five LMT. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. You did it. Yep. I thought like, oh, I'm going to start feeling amazing. It's going to be magical. Like tomorrow I'm just going to be like good as new. And that was not the case for me. <laughs> and so I was like, shoot, okay, this is going to be a little more work and investigating than I thought. So I think hearing that though, that that's the case for other people too, is so reassuring that, you know, it's not always an overnight fix and an overnight solution. Absolutely. And some people never do tolerate 5-LMTHF, right? Like they just never can get that to work for them, which is fine. There's totally other workarounds, right? We just need to know that information. Yeah. And so I guess starting with, you know, you've been talking about methylation. Um, can you talk a little bit about the difference between people who are over methylators versus under methylators and how they might know which one they are? Yes. So this is something that, that I discovered kind of within my client population. And then, um, you know, I started to read some research that was sort of backing this up, but, but people with MTHFR. So one of the biggest things that we have to do with this 5L methyl tetrahydrofolate is create methyl donors, which then methylate our genes. And methylation turns genes off or on, right? And so there are people who over-methylate their genes, right? And turn too many of them off. And there are people who under-methylate their genes and turn too many of them on. And as it turns out, these two states have very different personality profiles. Mm. And so uh, the most common is under-methylators. And these are the classic like type A overachievers. These are the people that you meet who have, you know, straight A's, incredible grades, incredible performance at work. You know, they're the first one in the office. They're the last one to leave. A lot of times they're training for the Olympics, right? Like they are pushing themselves in every way mm -hmm. to be better, to get closer to perfect. So there's this strong streak of perfectionism and achievement. Um, they're usually very mentally stable, um, which is great, but often tend towards depression and low serotonin states. Um, very often, a lot of seasonal allergies and high histamine states, so very reactive in terms of pollens and 
um, skin allergens. So you see a lot of like hives, sneezing, itching, watery nose, runny eyes, the whole shebang. Um, and so within that group, it's actually, that group is a little bit more likely to have um, issues tolerating the 5-LMTHF and they may be more likely to need a workaround. And there are some really great workarounds. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, the other group is uh, overmethylators and we overmethylate our genes. Uh, and that looks, it's sort of like the opposite, right? We have that same achievement streak, but only for things that really matter to us, <laughs> things that matter to other people. Eh, less so. <laughs> so, so this is not necessarily the really high grades picture. This is like um, the kid who maybe can write a piano concerto, but won't sit down and do homework, right? Like they're just not interested in that. That's not the thing that drives them. Or the person who can create this incredible piece of art, but um, has never been able to get to a job on time and isn't particularly interested in getting to a job on time. You know, and so this picture is a lot more like the black sheep, the outlier from society. These are the people who've maybe chosen a little bit different path and who haven't followed that achievement model, but they very often are extremely gifted in whatever that thing is that interests them because they're able to, you know, focus on that 100%, right? Like yeah. that is the thing that they're going to do with their time. And it doesn't really matter what their family or their society or their boss says about it. <laughs> and so these people tend to be a little bit more like black sheep, a lot more artists and creative types. Mm -hmm. Um, Often there's a lot more mental instability in this group. So we see a lot more like schizophrenia, bipolar, um, anxiety disorders tend to go in this group. Also ADD, ADHD, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and as opposed to the high histamine state that we see in, in undermethylators, these tend to have low histamine intolerances, which is things like food sensitivities and chemical sensitivities, right? That don't follow that typical histamine pattern. So the reaction isn't instant and vivid and allergic in nature. It's slower and weirder and kind of more mysterious. Right? And is it ever the case that somebody would like kind of look at the list of symptoms for over versus under methylators and be like, wait a minute, I, I think I have some on both sides. Like, Absolutely. is it possible to be a combination? Absolutely. It is a common. Yeah, it is possible to be a combination. And technically, there's a lot of overlap, right? Like both of these groups are people who push themselves to their limits. They just push in different ways. Right. Um, and they're people who are sensitive to the world. They're just sensitive in different ways. And so um, there is a lot of overlap and there is a lot of dovetailing. When it comes down to a I'm not sure situation, I tend to look at the histamine response to start to be able to predict how they're gonna do with different supplements and medications. Um, because interestingly, they do have very different reactions to not only supplements, but also medications, right? So specifically medications for depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tend to look at that histamine piece if, if the person is really, you know, halfsies in terms of, <laughs> of how they're looking personality wise. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So then once somebody has kind of like gotten this sort of basic information about their 
their status and then started to observe like where they lie in terms of symptoms and their basic state. What are some of the next steps towards like experimenting with seeing, you know, what works for your body and, and trying to feel better? Absolutely. So I recommend the first step is always taking folic acid out of your life, okay, right? So getting it out of vitamins, getting yeah. it out of supplements, getting it out of food. Um, so that let's talk about, cause for supplements, it's probably easy to just look at the label and you see folic acid, don't take right. that. But what are some of the common foods that we see it in a lot that people are probably eating every day without realizing? Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone in North America is pretty much eating folic acid all the time without <laughs> <Yeah>. knowing it. <laughs> so the biggest thing is wheat, right? Wheat and grains are fortified with folic acid simply because, um, it's such a vital nutrient that the government decided it was important enough to put it into our main food staple so that women would have fewer birth defects in their babies. Mm -hmm. um, and the logic behind that is sound. It actually has been working for that, right? It's just this particular problem it's not so good for. And so bread <laughs> is always an issue, cereals, pastas, um, any sort of baked goods, right? Like bars, you know, cookies, anything like that. Unfortunately, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, but also most of the flowers sold in stores, unless it's organic, is also fortified. Um, so that's a bit of a bummer. So even if you're baking it yourself, a lot of times it's still fortified. <laughs> um, yeah, you so got to get those alternative gluten-free flowers and rice, right, flour, right. almond flour, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and even organic wheat flour or hundred percent whole wheat is sometimes not fortified. If they leave the, you know, the bran and the germ in the flour, then sometimes okay. that's not fortified, but, um, but yeah, most of the flour that we use for everything is fortified and that's, it can be really daunting to try and take those things out of your diet because then it's sort of that situation of like, but what's left, <laughs> what else right. do I eat? <laughs> right. Um, and it, it's definitely a learning curve, right? There is a learning curve in terms of eating differently. Um, and if it's too terrifying, just make sure it's out of your supplements, right? Like if you can't, if you can't do the food part yet, you might come do it later on, but if that's too scary, just make sure you're not actually actively like paying for extra folic acid in your vitamins, in your supplements, in energy drinks, in whatever it is you take. And so just to clarify though, so for people who don't have the MTHFR gene variant or one of them, when they eat foods or supplements with folic acid, it, does it essentially do what it's supposed to do? And it actually is good for them? Uh, it's dose dependent. So at a reasonable dose, it is good for them. Unfortunately in the West, a lot of us are overdosing because of the fortification and because we take vitamins, right? Like we're doing both. We're not doing one or the other, we're doing both. Yep. And so in a situation of overdosing, it's actually not good for anybody and it is linked to cancer. Yeah, okay. Um, it's just a good kind of clarification to make. If, if yeah, absolutely, are. absolutely. And, and so then you talk about, um, you know, we're getting rid of folic acid, but we want to add food sources of folate. So that might be confusing to people. Can you explain right. like what the difference is? Yeah. So food sources of folate, ironically, don't ever have folate on the label. If there's folate on the label, it's 
folic acid and it's fortified. <laughs> so food sources of folate are things like lentils and beans, any sort of bean, um, avocados, asparagus is a great one, you know, but it's dark green leafies, right? Like it's, it's foods that have grown that way. Nothing's been done to them. Okay. Yeah. So whole foods and yes, that yeah. our bodies, MTHFR bodies can use. Yes. Yeah. Generally, there's a very, very tiny percentage of people who even react badly to the folate in those foods. Mm. Um, but it's a very tiny percentage. Okay. So, all right. So we start by taking a look at diet and supplements and, and that in itself should be pretty game changing in terms of the results people feel and, and experience in, in their body and in their symptoms. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes. And for a lot of people, that's actually enough, right? Like that's all they need. If they can get the folic acid out and get in good dietary sources of folate, they kind of nailed it, right? Like for some people, that's it. That's the journey. <laughs> and, then, and then for others of us, we still need a little bit extra. Yeah. Um, the Let's... people who are most likely to need extra are the over methylators. We tend to, to need a, a bigger boost of 5-LMTHF. Okay. Where under methylators are less likely to need that, right? Like they, they are often good. If they can get the food sources, then they're good, but they may need something to boost their serotonin a little bit and compromise, you know, like compensate for some other issues that are happening down, down the road. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's talk more about that because I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are already pretty um, invested in their health and wellness and, and may already eat this way just as a byproduct of trying to Absolutely. eat lots of fresh natural foods. And I, I know for me, that was definitely the case of like, okay, wait a minute, I'm not really eating any artificial folic acid and I'm eating a lot of folate rich foods to begin with. And I was doing that before. So then what? <laughs> yeah. What's next? Yeah. <laughs> what's next? Yep. Um, so if we're starting the absolutely right way, I recommend starting all of the other B vitamins without the folate. Okay. Um, and so a good B multi right now, the only company that I'm aware of that makes one without folate is seeking health. That's Ben Lynch's company. He's an MTHFR expert as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, he makes a product called B minus or a multivitamin called optimum start. And, uh, and both of those are folate free, but they have all of the cofactors because B vitamins work as a group and you need all of them to actually run this, right? Like it's not just about folate. It's just that folate we have a little bit of trouble with, but like the ends, the MTHFR enzyme uses all of these B vitamins as cofactors. And so it's important to get the full spectrum and not just get hyper-focused on folate. Yeah. And I, I think I remember reading somewhere, maybe even in one of your posts that it's also important to make sure it doesn't have, um, B12 in it. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Cause I think like I, I was under the impression that B12 is great for energy and B12 is great for energy. Um, but some MTHFR folks have trouble with methylated products. And so if you happen to be taking a methyl B12, that one can get you into a little bit of trouble with MTHFR. Mm -hmm. And technically it's the best form, just like 5L methyl tetrahydrofolate is the best form of folate, but that doesn't mean we tolerate it well. Um, and so for some people taking the methyl form of B12 gives them a kind of anxious, over-caffeinated hyper energy rather than a healthy energy. 
Mm, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. <laughs> the like where you feel like you have the jitters and you're exactly. Like, yeah. Quite it's just straight. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so it's not that it's bad for you. It's just that that form is a little bit harder to tolerate if your body is a little overwhelmed with the methyl groups. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. Um, okay. So you look at your multi, um, and your B vitamins and, and kind of what you're taking in there. Um, and then is there anything else on the, the supplement front that is important to be aware of kind of at the start or at the beginning at least? Um, at the start, I would recommend that nobody buy a product that says methyl anything, right? So there's all of these like methyl this, methyl that, methyl optimize, right? And they yeah. have methyl donors and they have high doses of, you know, methylated folate and they have all of this stuff. And for, if, if that's the first thing you're trying, it could be a great thing, but it might also be completely crazy making, right? Like mm. it, it's just, you've got to really start cautiously and with low doses of things and go slowly, right? So if you jump right into one of these high powered products, it can be pretty traumatic. Um, and I've had a lot of people call me in a panic, like a, an actual panic. Like I took this five days ago and I still can't sleep. What is going on? Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, we can be very sensitive to supplements and especially those methyl groups. So do be careful. Um, and, and if you're starting with like the B minus, which is just a B complex without the folate or the, the optimal start, which is a full multivitamin without the folate, Stay with that for a couple of weeks before you try adding in a tiny dose of the 5-L-methyl tetrahydrofolate. Okay. And then when you do start the 5-L-methyl tetrahydrofolate, truly start with a low dose and watch your body, right? Like I really recommend using a symptom tracker while you're doing all of this because, you know, the thing that I hear from people a lot of times is, you know, like, I'm not sure if it's helping. I can't really tell, but it's supposed to be good for me. So I'm taking it. Um, but I also have this new issue, right? Like I've noticed my anxiety is higher or I'm having some insomnia or, you know, I just, I can't get to sleep as easily or whatever it is. Um, and sometimes those things are linked to the thing that you're taking that's supposed to be so good for you, <laughs> right. which is unfortunate, but true. And, and so it really matters to start things cautiously and to really watch your symptoms as you do start, especially with MTHFR, because I mean, we tend towards sensitivity to things, right? Like we tend to be sensitive to products, tend to be sensitive to supplements and allergens, obviously. So, you know, we do, we do really have to be a little bit more careful than average. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of leads me into, I, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about and touch on, but I want to make sure that we touch on um, detox in this conversation as well and, and why that is important, especially for MTHFR folks. Absolutely. So two, of our, two out of six of our major detox pathways are um, dependent in some way on MTHFR. And one is methylation, right? We methylate certain toxins to be able to remove them. And the other is glutathione, which is our master antioxidant. So we use something called glutathione S conjugation for some toxins to be able to remove them. And these are heavy hitting toxins, right? Like I'm not, I'm not talking about like, oh, that was a little bit bad for me. No, this is like mercury, right? And arsenic. And yeah, it's, it's, it's the big, bad stuff. big boys. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so 
we need this process to be working adequately in order to be able to detox some of those things. And so if, you know, like me, you're finding about out about MTHFR, not when you're five, but when you've had a few decades to accumulate some toxins, yeah. then a big part of the journey is actually allowing your body to process the backlog, right? All of the things that it hasn't been able to process because it just didn't have the nutrients. It didn't have the methyl groups. It didn't have the you know, glutathione or whatever. And so that backlog can be a little bit tricky to deal with because if you let it out too fast, right, which, which is usually somebody taking a, a high dose of a, you know, 5L methyl tetrahydrofolate or a methylated product and the, having that toxic dump in their system, right, where their system's like, oh, yay, I have resources. I can get rid of some of this. Um but then getting stuck halfway because it's, you know, way too many things to get rid of. And so if that's happening, then it puts people into this really awful place symptom wise, where they're feeling again, all of those toxic symptoms and, and potentially doing some damage to their body because it's, it's a very uncontrolled sort of reaction, right? It's uncontrolled detox. So we do really have to make these gentle detox strategies a part of our daily routine, right? And, and when I say gentle detox strategies, I'm not talking about the kick in the pants detox kit. I'm talking about like really gentle kind of nourishing things that we can do to encourage that little bit of detox every day, rather than to push it all out in a lump, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> that gets messy. Right. Which is so important because I think people hear the word detox and they assume that you mean like, like you said, those detox kits with lots of pills or a juice cleanse or something like exactly, that. Exactly. Exactly. Do the thing that's going to like torture your body into releasing toxins. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's not. Awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's, let's avoid that at all costs. So um, yeah. What are some examples of like the more gentle detox methods? Well, things that are a little bit less liver focused and a little bit more, um, so like saunas, I love saunas. Saunas are great, right? Because we sweat out toxins and we sweat out tiny amounts, right? It's not, it's not like this massive toxin elimination. It's these tiny little bits of toxins that are coming out from tissues without having to go through the liver processing and the digestion and the bloodstream and the whole shebang, right? Like they're just pink coming out through your skin. Mm -hmm. um, I love that, right? It's very, it's very neat and tidy. It's very symptom-free. It's, it's gentle and it accumulates slowly over time, right? So if you're, if you're doing something, allowing your body to sweat regularly, then it's like these little tiny bits of toxins are coming out without you having to go to that horrible detox symptom place. Right. Um, other things that I love, I mean, fiber, it's so not sexy, right? But, but <laughs> taking so something, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Metamucil. Um, <laughs> But taking, you know, a good dose of fiber or something else that will bind to toxins in your system. So like clay or activated charcoal or something like that, taking something like that regularly helps you to actually eliminate the toxins that you're um, depositing in your digestive tract because we're thrifty creatures, right? Like, so we're manufactured basically to conserve anything that might ever be useful ever, ever. 
(laughs) And hormones are the biggest example of that, where, you know, we go through all the processing, we put them through liver and we detox them and they're eliminated in bile. And so they're sitting there in the GI tract. And then, you know, as they're going through the body sort of says, Hey, wait, there's something good in the trash, bring that back. Right. Right. (laughs) And so we reabsorb them. But if there's something binding in the gut, then it binds to those hormone molecules, it binds to some of the other toxins and actually pulls them out. So they're eliminated, right? Like that's a very effective strategy that really doesn't give you any detox symptoms because it's it's just eliminating what's already there. It's not actually pushing your liver to detox more. Right. Yeah. And that's such an easy, easy thing to do. Exactly. Exactly. And also you know, reducing, reducing the metabolic burden can be a form of detox. So like intermittent fasting is an exceptional form of detox, right? Where you're doing 24 hours away from food, which is surprisingly easy actually, because, you know, you have a healthy dinner, you go to bed the following morning, you just drink lots of water and skip breakfast and lunch and then have a healthy dinner that evening. Like it's, it's not that bad. (laughs) You might be a little peckish in the afternoon, but like, you know, it's not like starvation, right? And so how is that beneficial for the detox process? Because, you know, we're talking about like eating fiber helps like pull some of the stuff out. So how does not eating for 24 hours support? That's such a great question. I love that question. So eating fiber supports it by giving toxins something to bind to in the gut. Not eating at all supports detox in that eating is one of our biggest sources of toxins that need to be eliminated, right? Mm -hmm. And so giving your body a little bit of a break from not just eliminating those toxins, but also metabolically processing all that food, right? Like it's actually a lot of work for our bodies eating. (laughs) And so if you can take that work off of your body's plate, then it can kind of turn its attention to other things that may need doing that don't always get a chance. Um, and especially in a culture where, you know, we are regular eaters, like we are, yeah. we are three solid meals a day without pause. And that's not actually a very typical state for us, evolutionarily speaking, right? Like most cultures have gone through periods of either voluntary fasting or, or involuntary fasting, right? Where there was food scarcity. And so they either had a very reduced diet or, or, you know no food for a while. Um, and our bodies have kind of adapted to that. We, we need that a little bit. And so now, you know, all of this eating is a little overwhelming. Would you recommend for somebody who like experience, if, if they try to, to do a longer fasting window, like 24 hours and, and they start to experience a lot of symptoms, be it like headaches or fatigue or seemingly feeling more toxic, like should they keep going with it and push through that or should they break the fast? That's also a really great question. And usually those symptoms are toxic symptoms, right? Right. So what's happening there is your body is liberating those toxins into your bloodstream. And so you feel the effects of them, um, which is a great sign that you're detoxing, but also a sign that your body maybe needs a little bit of extra support for that detox. Um, If possible for those people, I'd love to see them start taking binders during a fast. So you could still take say fiber or activated charcoal or something like that during that 24 hour fast and see if they could get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, or do, you know, like do a sauna or hot bath or something to allow them to sweat some of those toxins out. 
Um, and then the other issue is some people have blood sugar issues, right? And that's, that's a separate problem. Right. Um, and if there are blood sugar issues, then sometimes fasting isn't necessarily the right choice, like in terms of doing a complete fast, but you could do a very, very modified diet, right? Where you have a very um, light, say something like broth or something like that in the day instead of full meals, where you're still sort of reducing that burden on your body, but you're also giving your body just a little bit of something to keep the blood sugar going and keep it, keep it up and not get into that horrible, like hypoglycemic place, which is not a good place either. Right. Not fun at all. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So if you can push through and just support detox a little bit more, then that's the, that's the best option. But if it's actually a hypoglycemic issue, then do have some moderated food intake. That's just smaller amounts, simpler to digest. Okay. Um, there are truly about a million more questions that I (laughs) want to ask you, (laughs) but I guess for anybody listening who maybe doesn't know their MTHFR status yet and is thinking like, huh, maybe this is me. Where do you recommend they start? Should they go to their doctor? Should they get a genetic test on their own and try to interpret it through something like genetic genie or what's the best way to start to get more information? I mean, I actually think how people methylate is a lot more important even than their, their MTHFR status. Mm. Um, so I would look into the over and under methylation pictures and see if either of those resonate. Um, and if they do just act on that, right? Like you don't, you know, genetic testing can be quite expensive. And so you don't necessarily need to know to take proactive actions for your health. And if you're like me and you're kind of a geek for information, then you might just want to know, uh, in which case I highly recommend, uh, 23andMe and then running it through a processor like Genetic Genie. And so 23andMe is 23andMe.com. Yep. Uh, and Genetic Genie is geneticgenie.org. Uh, and they will take your raw data from 23andMe and run it through something they call a methylation panel, I think, or methylation profile. Okay. Uh, and that's, it's brilliant, right? It's got so much information um, and it's a great place to get started. Um, and also, you know, just start, start reading about it. Like there's a lot of resources that, that are out there. Um, and, and I, you know, just to plug my own thing, we, yep, we I was just going to ask, I know you have <laughs> your amazing podcast, which breaks it down in such digestible pieces. And then I know you have a lot of great information on your website as well. So, so where can people find you and your, well, thank you so much. Yeah. The podcast is called to health with that. Um, and it's available on, you know, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, anywhere you find your podcasts. Um, or you can look at to health with that.com and it's two spelled out, not the, le- not the number two. Yep. Um, but also, uh, I, there's a great MTHFR community called genetic rock stars that is at community.tohealthwiththat.com. And it's just this incredible group of people who are all on the same journey and going through the same things. And it's, you know, it's this great sounding board for like, I'm having this symptom, but I can't take these things. Does anybody have any ideas? Right. And people are like, Oh yeah, I have that same thing. (laughs) Let me tell you about it. So it's really, you know, I think it, it's very valuable to connect with other people who actually have some of the same issues going on because, um, you know, my perspective is just one perspective and 
in genetic rock stars, you have hundreds of perspectives of different people who've been through the same journey and who are on the same journey. Yeah, and there's so much value in just feeling validated and not alone. Oh, exactly. I mean, we just had this big conversation about like, what do you do when you're traveling with friends and they're spraying air fresheners in the car and, Mm. you know, like putting on their aerosol deodorant that makes me, you know, lightheaded and then gives me a migraine. Like, how do you, how do you handle these situations? Right. Because those are situations that a lot of us are very familiar with. Totally. And, oh, you know, always needing to be the one who's a little bit pickier with where we go to eat and things like that. Right. Yeah. You, ha- you have to be more proactive when it comes to your health. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And, and then that can be very isolating, right. And it can feel like kind of a, um, a place where you're inconveniencing people or a place where you're putting people out or where you feel conflicted between your own needs and other people's. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So I highly recommend for anybody who's listening, we will link all of that in the show notes below so that you can listen to Amy's podcast, check out her website and join her community because there's so much value in all of that. And, and I'm so appreciative that you're doing this work. It's so needed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, you know, honestly, it's a, it's my passion project, right? Like this has helped me so much. I just, I just want to spread the word, right? (laughs) Help other people. You can feel good. Yeah. I'm so glad that, that it is your passion because it's definitely making a difference. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you so much. So the last question I love to ask everybody who comes on this show, being that it's a holistic wellness show is that, um, what is one wellness practice that you swear by and can't go a day without? Oh my gosh. Magnesium at night. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Me too. (laughs) It's like, you know what? It's, it's, it's to the point where, um, the last time I traveled, my husband and I were going to Poland for a few months and like prior to going, I had obviously my own magnesium pack, but I also had looked up the Polish word for magnesium. (laughs) I was ready. (laughs) That's amazing. I am not running out. Yeah, because you know what it feels like. You know how you feel like when you take it and you know what it feels like when you don't. Exactly. Yeah. Magnesium at bedtime is one of my, like, this will never, never go away from my life. (laughs) Yeah, I am right there with you on that one. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Anytime. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. Again, I I really appreciate the work you're doing and I'm so glad to be connected to you and and just really um, appreciate you sharing with my audience um, about this journey and and how maybe it can, um, they can start to see some impact and some positive changes in their health and their life as well. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Yeah. And for everybody who tuned in today, thank you for listening. And if you think there's somebody in your life who might benefit from hearing the information we shared in this episode, definitely be sure to share the link with them and uh, make sure that they, they get a chance to tune in. And as always, until next time, have a happy and healthy day. 